Good morning, Arbor Church. What's well, 11 o'clock? I thought you'd be more awake than that. Got a little bit of a weekend hangover going on. Welcome to Arbor. If you're first and brand new here, first time here and brand new, we love that you're here today. My name is Scott. I'm one of the regular speakers here today, and I'm thrilled to be back up here sharing again, um, continuing the series that's been going on for three weeks now called Tested about when we have tests and trials and suffering into our life, how to respond to that and what is God trying to say to us from his scripture about that. While I don't have some great introductory story like Jake does about his bachelor party he shared last week, which if you didn't hear that story, you should look it up. I was actually there for that story. Uh, I was a key contributor to that. Um, I do have my own little lighthearted story about being tested and going through a struggle of my own. It was in high school, my junior year, when I was taking chemistry. Science is not my favorite subject. In fact, I don't like science very much. Ironically, it's what I scored highest on on my SAT. I don't know why. But I had a chemistry teacher that him and I did not see eye to eye. Our personalities did not align. Our philosophies of life and spiritualness um, spiritualness did not align. In fact, I think at one point in our conversations together in debates, I told him that he was going to hell. Which is not a good thing to tell your junior year high school chemistry teacher. Um, and so not, needless to say, we had this tense relationship. And throughout the year, I maintained a really solid 65% in that class. And I was really happy about that. And he, he made it known to me that I was a D student every day. And we get into the final part of the year, and we had a major exam coming up. And we went into the exam. I knew that I needed to score a decent grade to get my grade from a D up to a C. And I went in to take the test that day, and I sat down at this table, and right across from me is one of my friends who's a straight-A chemistry student. And we began taking the test, and I noticed that he's not covering up any of his answers. And I'm sure my eyes wandered, but I did not cheat. I was like, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to get this grade on my own. So while I may have glanced and glimpsed at his test, and I can read upside down, I'm really good at that, I did not copy anything. So the test came back. He was handing them out, and I did not get mine back. He says, I want to talk to you after class. I'm like, great. I said, you know, maybe I did really, really well. So he calls me up to his desk after class, and he goes, you're either going to need to retake the test or get a zero. I'm like, why? He goes, you cheated. I'm like, what do you mean I cheated? He says, well, you got a 64%. I'm like, wait a second. You're going to accuse me of cheating when I got a 64%. Either you really think I'm stupid, all right, or you don't think I'm very smart, because if I'm going to cheat, I'm going to do better than a 64. I'm going to at least get like a 74 or something. And so he's like, nope, you either need to get a 64, you need to take it again or get a zero. And it was really the first time in my life my dad was like, I'll go in and talk to your teacher for you. I'm like, no, dad, I'm a man. I can handle this myself. So I went back and told the teacher I really did think he was going to hell and that he was wrong, and I did not retake the test the first day. Then he came to me again and he goes, I really want you to retake it. So I retook it, and I got a 66%, which proved the gods were right that I am not a cheater, but I'm also very not good at chemistry. So all that to say is that little testing in my life, I think, is kind of a little picture of how we go through things in our lives at times thinking that we have this everything figured out and a perspective of how things are going, and they go different than we planned. I didn't plan on having that hard of a year in chemistry. I thought I could get through it, get my C, move on, and be done with it. I encountered some struggles along the way. And that's what testing is all about. And so today, what we're going to look into is a person in the Bible that went through probably 
the most amount of testing that any individual has done in Scripture, and that is the story of Job. All right? Job is a unique book. It is set in the land of Uz. There's no Israelite characters in it. It has no clear historical setting, all of which I believe is unique and intentional because it draws our attention uniquely on the story and the questions that are asked. All right? It is also one of the most profound theological books in the Bible, and I've never tried to talk about Job in one sermon. The last time I did it many years ago, it was a 10-week series. So we're tackling a lot today. It's going to be dense, a lot of information, and I'm going to try to keep it as simple and short as possible and as clear as possible. But this book has caused more debate, more arguments, more confusion, and more wonderings in the theological world than we're going to be able to answer here today and definitely not be answered by me. But let's try to synthesize as much as we can from this story of Job, but let's pray first. God, we need your help today. I pray that you'd move me out of the way. I pray that you'd give us ears that want to hear, hearts that want to listen, and feet that want to change the world. Speak to us today, God. Amen. Right out of the box, I want to give you the main point of Job. God is good. The main point of Job is God is good. I know this may sound cliche, and you've heard the saying, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. You've heard that, and it's cliche, and it's like Christianese, but it's a profound truth that we have to anchor to. And I know we go through things in our life that cause us to hesitate and wonder about that. But God is good. That's our first anchor point that I want us to keep in mind as we journey through this today. God wants us to focus on the questions in Job, not so much the suffering of Job. He doesn't want us to look at the why, but what do we do when we get to suffering? Not why do we have suffering, but what do we do when we encounter suffering? The book is ordered in a very concise manner. There's a prologue and epilogue at both ends of the book, but the bulk of the book, 25 chapters, is written in this dense Hebrew poetry about a dialogue between Job and four of his friends and their theories as to what's happening with Job. But spoiler alert is that we wrongly assume that in this story we're going to answer the great question of why does God allow suffering? And I'm sorry to say today that you're not going to get the key answer or a answer to why does God allow suffering, but you're going to get a better perspective of a God that is in control and a God that is good. Let's start in Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was pure and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions included 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. That's interesting. I mean, I'm sure I know why he had female donkeys, but it's interesting. In addition, he had a very great household. Thus, he was the greatest of all the people in the East. So we set up the character of Job. Blameless, upright, righteous, wealthy, well-to-do, respected, powerful. This is the man. Immediately after we're introduced to Job... We are transported into the heavens for a scene that is rarely found in the scriptures, but is profoundly important to our understanding of God, evil, and life. One that is not easily understood or digested with a quick glance, so quick glimpse that we're having today, so I encourage you to go back and read more on your own. We see that God is holding court in the heavens with his sons of God or his angels. Let's read. Now the day came when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. 
and Satan also arrived among them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord from roving about the earth and from walking back and forth across in it. So the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on earth, a pure and upright man, one who fears God and turns away from evil. That right there is a message in itself, just that passage. Everything that was encountered there. The angels come before God to report. Satan comes before God. God mentioned something about Job, who he knows of all the people on the earth. God knows intimately every detail about every person and speaks to what we already know about Job. It's one thing for the author of the book to say Job is upright and blameless, but God himself speaks that Job is upright and blameless. And all this leads us to our next key anchor point. God controls all. And when I say God controls all, he knows all. He manages all. He controls all. He is all. God is omnipotent, omniscient. He's everywhere at all times, omnipresent. He is all. Notice in verse 8 that the Lord offers up Job. God essentially begins bragging about who Job is and asks him, all right, have you considered Job? And here we have our first confounding question of why would God offer up Job? This answer will be shown as we go through the journey of Job and in the end when God takes Job on his own journey with him. But it also goes back to God controls all. And while God may allow things to happen in our life, that doesn't mean it's always from the hand of God. Suffering comes in three simple forms, all right? Either from something we've done, something that's been done to us, or because we live in a broken world and things happen. Satan himself is up there trying to get after Job. And so Satan's out like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, as Peter shares with us in his book. Be sober and alert. Your enemy the devil like a roaring lion is on the prowl looking for someone to devour. There is a power differential going on here that you need to understand. Satan wants to break the relationship between us and God. I believe Satan knows he's going to lose. And because he knows he's going to lose... His mission in life is to separate as many people from God to take him down with them as he can. Now, this is before the cross, but I think Satan's mission has always been break relationship between the created man and the creator. He did it in the garden, and he's done it ever since. But God is in control of all. We jump forward to verse number nine again, and we look at, then Satan answered the Lord, is it nothing that Job fears God? Have you not made a hedge around him and his household and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his livestock have increased in the land. But extend your hand and strike everything he has and he will no doubt curse you to your face. So here's Satan's challenge. He begins to launch accusations. Anchor point three. Satan is the great accuser. Satan is the great accuser. We started with God is good. God controls all, but Satan is the great accuser. And here he, one, first accuses God. Well, no wonder Job loves you. You've done nothing bad to him. He's been blessed and he's got all these riches. And then he says, but if I strike my hand out against um, Job, if I do bad things to Job, he will turn and curse you, God. The devil wants to pull you down before God and he wants to accuse you to your face. 
On more than one occasion, we hear this in Scripture. In Revelation, we read that Satan is the accuser of our brethren who accused them before God day and night. Satan wants you to believe that you are not worthy to approach God, that you are only worthy of anything that comes your way. But you are not approaching him on the basis of your worthiness, that you're approaching God only because you're desperate and broken. The difference between Satan's accusations is they push you away from God and God's conviction is it pulls you to God. Satan's accusations will drive a wedge and make you live in guilt and shame and separation from God. God's conviction and trials and tests in our lives will pull you towards him if you allow it to create strength, growth, and live in his grace and mercy. But too often we get stuck in the accusations of Satan. Let's continue reading. God sets up some clear parameters here in verse 12. So the Lord said to Satan, all right then, everything he has is in your power. Only do not extend your hand against the man himself. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Our final anchor point here. Satan is under the control of God. You may think, well, you just said God controls all, but I think oftentimes in our life, we create this Darth Vader, Luke Skywalker dynamic of the force between God and Satan. And I know some of you Star Wars geeks are just freaking out right now. He brought in Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker into the sermon. How many have seen the new trailer, by the way? Yeah, see, there you go. There's one guy right there, all right? Satan is not as strong as God. Satan is not as powerful as God, not even close. Satan is not omniscient. He's not omnipresent, all right? He's not omnipotent. He is limited. He doesn't even compare to the realm and power of God. Satan is under the control of God and has to do everything with the permission of God. Satan can do nothing in the life of the Christian without God's permission, which means that God is also in control of all suffering, evil, and pain in the world that may come to you. It's important to realize this. This is not an equality of good force and evil force at work. This is God's good versus everything else. And we live in a broken, fallen world with an accuser that wants to attack and destroy. And because we live in a broken world, there's sin and there's hurt and there's pain and there's trauma and there's suffering. But God resides over it in his goodness. So now we come to the longest section of the scripture we're going to read today, and it's long, but you need to hear the story of Job. So Satan leaves heaven with permission to attack everything around Job except for Job himself. And so we pick up the story in verse 13. Now the day came when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and a messenger came to Job, saying, The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys were grazing beside them, and the Sabaeans swooped down and carried them all away, and they killed the servants with a sword, and I, only I, escaped to tell you. While this one was still speaking, another messenger arrived and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and has consumed them, and I, and only I alone, escaped to tell you. While this one was still speaking, another messenger arrived and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and carried them all away, and they killed the servants with the sword, and I and I only alone escaped to tell you. While this one was speaking, no kidding, I'm not making this up. 
Sounds like a bad joke's going to happen here. Another messenger arrived and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Suddenly, a great wind swept across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people and they died. And I, only I, escaped to tell you. Then Job got up and tore his robe. He shaved his head and then he threw himself down he threw himself down with his face to the ground. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will return there. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be blessed. And all this Job did not sin, nor did he charge God with moral impropriety. That's a story, folks. I'm not gonna begin to presume that I know everybody's level of suffering, hurt, trauma, pain in this room. I've had some of my own life when my dad left our family through my own divorce. We know the story of Pastor Jake and Davey and their loss of their child, Magnolia. We know that there's suffering and pain in this church. I don't know what you've been through. I don't know if your story is relevant to what Job went through, but I think all of us has been in places of our life where we feel like, will this ever stop? Will there ever be a cure? Will I ever get better? Will my child ever learn? Will you just take this away, God? What more can you do to me? And in all this, Job still praises God. Now, I think Job's faith at this time, as strong as it is, wasn't as refined and deep as it's going to be. Job was an upright, pure, blameless man, but he still had deeper to go with God. So let's continue to read here. So Satan is still not content because Job doesn't falter. So Satan gets angry again. He's the accuser. So he goes back into heaven and we replay the scene again. Let's pick it up in chapter two. Again, the day came when the sons of God went to present themselves before the Lord. Satan arrived among them to present himself to the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, where do you come from? Pause for a moment. Remember when I told you that Satan can do nothing without permission. He can't even address God without God first asking him and giving him permission. Do you see this? He doesn't just walk into God and begin talking. Nobody does that. God asks you, you can speak. Ironically, we as broken sinful creatures have the right of passage to go to God anytime and speak to him. You need to understand that dynamic truth at play here. Satan doesn't even have that permission, but we do. Because we are his created sons and daughters, and God is good. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, a pure and upright man. Once again, God offers him up. He still holds firmly to his integrity, so that you stirred me to destroy him without reason. I did this, Satan. I already destroyed everything around him for no reason other than you thought he would falter and he didn't. But then Satan answers the Lord. Here comes the accusation, skin for skin. Indeed, a man will give up all that he has to save his life. But extend your hand and strike his bone and his flesh and he will no doubt curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, all right, he is in your power. Only preserve his life. So Satan went out from the Lord and he afflicted Job with malignant ulcer from the soles of his feet to the top of his head, basically covered him in boils. So Job took a sharp piece of broken pottery to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. 
This presents the first insights to the confounding question of why God allows suffering. What is the point to this apparent madness? It reads like a Hollywood script, like a sick scene from Game of Thrones or something. Evil at bat. We do this, you do that. I do this, you're going to do this. The question of why God allows suffering assumes God is either not omnipotent and not a control, or that he is an uncaring, cruel God who doles out suffering as some sort of punishment. But neither of these are correct. There's a deeper theological understanding of suffering that we must get to. Suffering is in this world because we chose a broken world over a perfected world. God created this world perfectly. We ushered in human choice, man choice, and brought with it sin, calamity, trauma, and hurt. And now a good God resides over that broken world. So here's the scene. Here's the struggle. An upright man struck down. All that he loves is taken away. He himself is inflicted with these boils and pain and agony. But God is still in heaven. Satan Satan is still roaming. So now we move into the story where Job begins to encounter some of his friends. (laughs) And you're going to see these friends are quite the friends. I don't know if you've had some of these friends, but maybe you'll relate to some of this as we go through. The first person to encounter Job, though, is a family member, his wife. Of all the calamity, his wife is left standing. Verse 9 of chapter 2, and what a woman she was. Then his wife said to him, are you still holding firmly to your integrity? Curse God and die. That is a wonderful woman right there. That, you put that up on match.com and see what you come up with. But Job replied, you are talking like one of the godless women would do. Should we receive what is good from God and not also receive what is evil? And all this Job did not sin by what he said. I often wonder why did Job's wife get spared? I think Job might have been sitting there going, what, really? Really? And saying, so like, oh, I know, she's quite the woman, isn't she? I kept her around for a reason, buddy. In the midst of your suffering, you may encounter some of the most difficult questions from the people closest to you. Some of the most difficult accusations from the people closest to you. That's just another ploy of Satan. That's just another tool of his to find that person in your life that's the closest to you to go, what's up? What are you thinking? You still believe in this God? It's another ploy of Satan, folks. That is not God at all. Then we have Job's three friends in verse 11. When Job's three friends heard about all his calamity that had happened to him, each of them came from their own part of the country. Eliphaz, the Temanite, that's not termite, Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Nathan, I can't even say it, Namathite, Man, those are big words. It's hard to say and you get nervous and you get your turds whisted up front. It's really uncomfortable. They may, some of you will get that on the way home. They met together to come to show, how, to show sympathy for him and to, con- to console him. But when they gazed intently from a distance but did not recognize him, they began to weep loudly. Each of them tore his robes and threw dust in the air over their heads. 
Then they sat down with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights, yet no one spoke a word to him, for they saw his pain was very great. I have no doubt these are three true loyal friends of Job. They show up with the right intent. They show up and sit and do nothing but just be present. Oftentimes, we show up in the suffering lives of people and we try to offer advice. We try to make comparisons to our own sufferings and experiences rather than just understanding that more often than not, when people are going through pain and loss and suffering, they just need someone to be present. Someone to sit next to them. Someone to just be available. And Job's friends did that well for seven days and then they decided to open their mouths and what came out was a launch of accusations and dialogue that lasts for 25 chapters. Job shares, they respond. Job responds, they respond back. Three times the cycle's through. And basically it revolves around these conversations. Is God just? Does God run the universe in a strict principle of justice? And how is Job's suffering to be explained? And isn't that all of us today when we encounter our own level of suffering? Why cancer? Why now? Why did I lose my job? Why is my child ill? Why is it terminal? Why the divorce? Why all this? God, are you just? Are you even operating up there in a fair manner? Are you just doling things out randomly? And can you explain to me why this is happening? That's the wrestle for 25 chapters. The problem with all of these three friends and their accusations is they're operating under one big assumption and that assumption is based on the belief that God's justice is determined by our actions. Do not forget the, the key principle. God controls all. Our actions do not dictate or control anything about God. He controls all. Simply stated, the friends claim this, our actions dis dictate God's justice. That if we do wise and good things, we get success and rewards. If we do evil and bad or stupid things, we get suffering and punishment. Does that sound like a God that is good? Job counters all of this and defends himself. In fact, it breaks down this way. Job's argument is this. I am innocent. I have done nothing wrong. And God upholds that. God said the same thing about him. His, his implication then is, my suffering is not divine justice. So Job's conclusion is, God either doesn't run the world, all right, by divine justice, or God is just simply unjust. Did you get that? I am innocent. My suffering is not divine justice. God either doesn't operate by justice or he's just completely unjust. Job's friends are the reverse. They start over here saying, God is just. Thus the implication, God runs the world according to justice. Thus the conclusion, Job must have sinned. Do you see the difference? Job, this is on you. They begin making up things that Job could have done. They launch into a litany of accusations. They go on and on and on and dialogue back and forth. And finally, Job is like, whoa, I cannot take any more from all three of you. 
Do not be one of those three friends in loved ones' lives when they're going through suffering. Whatever you do, do not try to attach the fact that something they've done has caused this. Does that mean that isn't always true? It could be true. Suffering comes either oftentimes because we live in a broken world, we've done something that caused our own suffering, or maybe God has decided it's time for some growth in each of us. I don't know. I don't have all those answers. But what I do know is we don't need to be accusing others because Satan's already a big enough accuser. Satan will do that for you 10 times better than you ever can. And you know what? Don't be a tool of Satan. Don't be his mouthpiece. Especially in the midst of suffering. Your head will play games with you already. So Job goes on this emotional roller coaster of accusations and pleas with God. He begins a schizophrenic journey of his own understanding of God. At one point he says, why has God denied me justice and made my life bitter? He even calls God a bully at one point. He says, God attacks me and tears me up in anger and gnashes his teeth at me. He blames God for orchestrating all the evil and injustice in the entire world. He says, God destroys the blameless and the guilty. He mocks at the despair of the innocent. But the moment that Job utters these things, he also flip-flops and says, God is just. He says, what hope do the godless and I have when God takes away our life? Job is all over the place with his thoughts, his emotions, the perspective of God. So he finally makes one last claim of his innocence and demands that God show up and explain himself. And he says in Job 31, if only I had someone to hear me, here is my signature, let the Almighty answer me. He reaches the end of his rope and he challenges God. Kind of like that teenager in her life that finally pushes back on us and wants some answers. And Job goes before God and he says, you need to talk to me. You need to tell me what's going on because I'm going crazy down here. I, I cannot figure out what I've done wrong, if I've done anything wrong, if you're just laughing, if you're just testing. What is going on here, God? And you would think that God would answer, but before he does, God offers one more friend. Because that's what Job needed, just one more friend. This friend doesn't say anything different than God is just and runs the world according to justice, but his conclusion about Job is differently. He says, suffering is building character. I think that's one of the biggest things we hear in our Christian circle, is our suffering is about building character. Wait a second, God already said Job was upright, blameless, and pure. There could be a bit of truth in this element, but does it mean it's the truth, the reason? No. Could it be that Job did do some things? Was he prideful? Did he have pride? Could be, but it's not the reason. Because God's story in Job is not about the reason, but about himself. God is good. Being told suffering is a Christian trait of following God and building our own character of faith could be a truth, but it's not meaning it's a reason. So finally, God answers Job. And I'll tell you right away, it's pretty simple. He comes to Job and simply says, you don't know what you don't know. So that's our next anchor point. We don't know what we don't know. I thought I knew what it was going to be like to be a parent. And then I actually had kids and realized I knew nothing. 
Oh, I remember being single, walking through the grocery store, all arrogant. Oh, my kids would never do that. Oh, that person just cannot control their children. Then I had three kids and tried to take them shopping at a grocery store. That is hard. That should be like an Olympic event. If you can manage your way through a store with nobody melting down and you not losing your cool, you get a gold medal. A bronze if you get bribed and actually walk out with a bag of candy that you had no intention of buying today. Because we don't know what we don't know. Especially when it comes to God. We tend to place God in a box of our own limited perspective and understanding. While God resides in awareness and perspective beyond anything we can comprehend. A simple analogy is as if your three-year-old came to you wanting and demanding to know why you make all the decisions you make. And you looking and you going, okay, fine. You want to micromanage the home? You want to run the house? You got it. In fact, I had a three-year-old that did this. It's my oldest child. Her name is Morgan. And when she was three and being naughty, we were just getting done with some consequences and I'm trying to do a restorative conversation and she's still mad and pouting. And she goes, it would be better if I just ran the house. Oh, really? You just, you want to run the house? Yes. I want to be in charge. Okay. You want to be in charge? Yes. And then my brother will listen to me and do what I say and it'll be better. I go, well, what are you going to do with mom and dad? I'm like, she's going to send us off to Hawaii. She's going to kick us out. She goes, I go, are you going to make us move? She goes, oh no, you're staying here and you'll do everything I say too. <laughs> I go, okay, so what's the first thing we're going to do? I'm hungry. Well, what are we going to make? I want some mac and cheese and ice cream. I'm like, okay, go make some mac and cheese and ice cream. I don't know, I don't know how. That's not my problem. You're in charge now. She wanders in the kitchen. She gets a pot out. What do I do now? I go, I don't know. You're in charge. Throws the pot down, starts getting more mad. It's absurd. And none of you, as much as a three-year-old can manage your house and run it and interrupt everything, you're not going to let them be in charge. Although as we walk around in today's society, it looks like it sometimes. <laughs> but it's absurd to think that a three-year-old could comprehend, even if you tried to explain why you can't have a whole bag of candy corn before we go to bed. Quit reasoning with them. They're three. That is a simplistic analogy, I think, of what we do when we go to God at times and shake our fist and demand answers to know why, because he's like, do you understand? Because you don't know what you don't know. And I don't think he's saying it to Job in spite or like, how stupid are you? Or you just don't get it. I think it's we as parents have experienced the fact like, how can I truly explain to you the why behind we do what we do? Because even if I tell you, your perception and lens and receptance right now isn't going to receive it or hear it. Am I alone in that understanding? And trying to explain to people what's going to happen. With God, it's so much more vast. In Job chapter 38, the Lord answers Job out of the whirlwind. He comes to him in a great burst of wind. I think it's ironic that what destroyed his children was a great wind, and then God shows up in a great wind to Job. Who is this who darkens counsel with my worth words about with words without knowledge? Get ready for a difficult task like a man. I will question you and you will inform me. So God kind of just says, "All right, you want to go? Let's go." 
Stand up, Job, be a man, and let me ask you some questions. I had that moment with my teenage son. I think every teenage son has that moment with their dad at once when they think they're just big enough and tough enough to take on their dad, either verbally or physically or mentally. And you're kind of like, all right, you want to act like a man? Then let's talk like a man. And that's what Job is saying here. And that's what God is saying. In verse 4, we read in chapter 38, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you possess understanding. Who set its measurements, if you know? Or who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its bases set and who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang in chorus and all the sons of God shouted out in joy. Basically, God goes on for two chapters saying, Were you present when I created the cosmos and the galaxies? Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Hey, Job, were you there when I formed the constellations and planets and moons? And Job, have you ever commanded the sunrise and the weather? And in taking Job on this cosmic virtual tour, he's not trying to humiliate Job. He's not trying to put Job in his place. That is, again, a Satan view of God. He's trying to open Job's perception and understanding. He's trying to show Job just how vast and expansive and extensive this universe and galaxy is that God runs from day to moment, 24-7, 365, and Job, you have no concept of any of that. But I am God and I am good. And so you may walk away from this thinking, was Job wrong to question God? Was he wrong to go to God? The beautiful answer is, while we may not know why about suffering, we do know what the what is, God invites us to come to him. He didn't rebuke Job. He didn't kick him out. He didn't send him away. He engaged Job in a learning opportunity for Job to go deeper in his appreciation and knowledge of God. And we walk around with a wonderful, cute God that fits in our first world here with a little pocket of who God is. And we go to him with our first world problems and we shake our fist and we get angry and we really don't know what we don't know. The problem is there's a deep assumption that we all live with that Job's friends lived with. And I believe that we struggle with it today. We think that we have a wide enough perspective and a deep enough understanding to tell God how he ought to run the world and how he ought to dole out justice. I am not belittling any suffering. I am not taking away the pain of losing a child, of walking through cancer, of a divorce, of trauma, of abuse, whatever's happened in your life, I do not belittle that, and God does not belittle that. But God wants you to understand how magnificent and mighty and wonderful he truly is in light of the suffering you're going through, because while there might not be hope in the why, there is hope in the who and the what. He is good, and he is mighty, and he is magnificent. So what does Job do? Job humbles himself. And God shares one more example with Job. He shares about two beasts, the behemoth and the Leviathan. The behemoth and the Leviathan are two creatures in the scripture that are used throughout the scripture, paint this picture of something that's magnificent and mighty, but also chaotic and dangerous. 
And what God is doing here with Job is trying to paint this picture of there is good and there is evil. But it's not and or, it's both and. It's the idea that we live in this magnificent orderly world that can also be chaotic and dangerous because as John Eldridge tells us, God himself, God himself is a dangerous God. And if you choose to follow God, it's not gonna be just some safe, easy journey. And we go back to the assumptions of the three friends again that God is just. He orders the world in a just manner, so apparently Job did something wrong. And God is unraveling all that and deconstructing it. Much like a time when I was standing in my living room at my house and I'm looking out the window onto our backyard and I see Morgan and Zach out there playing and they're about four years old, about five or six years old. Morgan's the oldest. And Zach's playing this wonderful game of where he picks a wiffle ball up, throws it in the air, hits it with one of those, you know those big fat round wiffle ball bats, the big fat ones? And the ball goes flying across the yard. Zach runs over to it, jumps on top of it, picks it up and yells, touchdown. I don't know what game he's playing in his head, but I'm just impressed that my kid can throw the ball in the air and hit with a bat and I'm starting to calculate signing bonuses already. Well, he's back there, happy as a clam, playing his own world, playing this game, all the rules in his head, and all of a sudden, big sister shows up on the scene, and she walks up, and she sees the ball rolling across there, and she bends over and picks it up and starts to walk off. This does not sit well with little brother. How dare you interrupt my game of baseball or football or whatever, foot baseball, whatever it's called he's playing. So he walks over to Morgan, and this argument ensues. I see the two of them through my window arguing back and forth, and I'm kind of like, you know, the guy inside going, hmm. I wonder what's going to happen next. I'm just observing this. And all of a sudden, this all happens in like five seconds, I see this epiphany strike Zach and his eyes go, she's got the ball, but I have the... And before I can do anything, the bat comes up and whack, hits Morgan right between the eyes with the big fat part of that bat. But Zach doesn't understand physics at this point in his life because for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction and it bounces back and hits him right in the head. So now it's just mass chaos. It's big sister running around with the ball trying to hit him and he's around the yard chasing her and I'm like, holy crap, I better get out there before their mom wakes up and then I'm gonna get hit. <laughs> so I run out I pull them apart and they're crying, that crying where you can't even talk. It's like <laughs> hit me with the bat, you know, those type of cries. And I pull them apart and they're wiping their nose and there's a rainbow of snit and spit and snot and everything. And I get him settled down. And the problem was this. They're four and six. Their perspective of what happened between them is twisted and warped and biased and unknowing. Morgan had no idea Zach was playing a game. She just saw a ball. Zach's sense of justice is, you took something of mine, so I'm gonna strike you back. Then we don't disagree. We're gonna run around and create more chaos and I'm gonna make sure I get mine. We laugh at that story, but that to me is essentially what Job's friends were trying to tell Job it all boiled down to, and he started to buy into it, and he goes, stop. Why am I getting hit with a bat, God? I've done nothing wrong. And I think God's saying, you don't get any, you didn't, neither one of you did anything wrong, you just don't get the big perspective. There's a simple way through this. Simple but profound. That doesn't mean it's not difficult. That doesn't mean it's not going to hurt. That doesn't mean there won't be pain. But there is a way through this. So Job responds to God 
in a worshipful manner. He basically falls on the ground and praises God and says, I do not know what I don't know. Who am I to question you? I repent, please forgive me. Then God looks at Job and says, you've spoken rightly about me. Now this can't apply to everything Job has said to God because Job has said some harsh things. But when God says you have spoken rightly about me, it's the heart. God is good. He invites you to come to him. In the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your resentment, and your anger and your confusion and your hurt and your pain, go to God. He invites the wrestling. He will struggle through it with you. He wants to hear your voice because he wants you to hear his voice and gain a perspective of his grandeur, of his majesty. See, two last points here. Even though Job does not unlock the mystery of why God allows suffering, it did invite us to trust God's wisdom and trust. That's what God said. Come trust my wisdom and knowledge. And here's two key points. One, When we focus on the reasons for suffering, we encounter arrogance and anger on our part. When we get obsessed with the why and focus on the reason this is happening, we get arrogant and angry. I don't deserve this. How dare you? And that turns to resentment and anger and bitterness. However, when we go to God honestly in our suffering, authentically, we encounter his grace and goodness. When we go to God in our suffering and talk to him authentically and honestly, we encounter his grace and goodness. We are not much different than Job. We are not much different than Job's wife. We're not much different than Job's friends. But we are distinctly different from God. So much more different. And when suffering rides into your life, Satan's going to come riding with it and he's going to accuse, he's going to lie, he's going to deceive. Friends may come in and comfort, others may say things. It's going to be a messy thing. That's why it's called suffering and pain and trauma and trials. They're not fun. And while we're called to have joy in the midst of them, it doesn't mean it's enjoyable. Do not think that James said, count it all joy when you face trials and tribulations. He meant that you should enjoy them. Joy resides here. It's in a knowledge of God is good. Hear me when I say that. God is good. Both in pain and suffering and in comfort and blessing. There is no more devastating blow against evil than when a human chooses God in the face of suffering, disappointment, unbelief, chronic pain, frustration, abandonment before the circumstances change. It's easy to go to God after the circumstances change. But Job went to him before they changed. He was not restored his family and other things in life till after. To get up and proclaim that God is good is a devastating blow to evil. In the end, we may not know what we don't know. But we do know this. God is good. All the time. Let's pray.